This message was presented at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, I think we're ready to go. Thank you for joining me for this segment. This uh, message is entitled Kingly Power, Alliance, and the Way Forward. It's a part of a series on Christian leadership. And before we begin, let's ask the Lord to bless us. We'll stop at about five or ten minutes for questions, but we'll stick pretty close to our schedule, aside from starting a few minutes late. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for GYC and the opportunity to explore and develop. I pray that you'll guide us in our understanding of some of the dialogues that are going on inside of our church and what proper church governance and the demeanor of a leader needs to be. So guide us in that, I pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want to recommend a book right at the very beginning of my uh, three seminar sessions entitled A Failure of Nerve. Uh, The author of this book is deceased. I think he died in the early 2000s. He was a Jewish rabbi who was an expert uh, psychologist in family therapy. The book is really built around the emotional fabric required to be a leader. Now, he will identify and distinguish between leadership technique and the, the essence of the makeup of the leader. The substance and the value of this book is in establishing the emotional, the ballast, you know, what's in the bottom of the boat to keep your leadership from tipping over or swamping. He establishes the elements of the strength needed in the person of the leader to actually fulfill the leadership role. In his book, he quotes this. He says, the great thing to remember is that the mind of man cannot be enlightened permanently by merely teaching him to reject some particular set of superstitions. He's quoting from the author of the five stages of Greek religion. And what he's saying is not enough to point out what's wrong. Don't focus primarily on what's wrong. There's an infinite supply of other superstitions always at hand. And the mind that desires such things, that is the mind that's not trained itself to the hard discipline of reasonableness and honesty, will as soon as its devils are cast out proceed to fill itself with their relations. Sounds like Jesus' parable. You kick the demon out. If you don't fill the house with something better, it, it's filled with seven of the friends of the one that was excised from the house. Now, Friedman is going to build primarily on the idea of a well-differentiated leader. A well-differentiated leader is someone that understands themselves and is not stuck in the emotional crossfire of trying to figure out who they are based on the people they're serving or leading. Now, the leader needs encouragement, edification. There's nothing wrong with that. But a leader needs to know who he is or she is, what he or she is called to do, and then the confidence to do it. And a person who doesn't really know who they are will be misshapen by the powerful winds that come to bear in leadership arenas. What is this well-differentiated leader? A leader must separate his or her own emotional being from that of his or own, her own followers while still remaining connected. That's a big task. In effect, what it's really a task that as a parent is absolutely a must. You love your kids, but you have to love them enough to not always be in their favor. 
you have to love them enough to sometimes wound them. Vision, he says, is basically an emotional rather than a cerebral phenomenon. So it's more about your ability to keep going when the feelings aren't right than to know exactly what it is you're supposed to do. Although knowing obviously is not at war with feeling and having the strength to move forward. Depending more on a leader's capacity to deal with anxiety than his or her professional training or degree. Now, if there's anything you want to take off this slide, it's the next to the bottom line. The leader's capacity to deal with anxiety. If you're going to lead, you're going to move people from where they are to where they need to be. In the process of doing that, some will come along willingly. Some will want to move from their comfort zone and some will absolutely resist you. And some will do worse than that. They will attack you for disturbing, moving their cheese to go back to an old leadership book of days gone by. It is your ability to deal with anxiety that will be the key component he contends to your leadership. I mean someone who can be separate while still remaining connected and therefore can maintain a modifying, non-anxious, and sometimes challenging presence. I mean someone who can manage his or her own reactivity to the automatic reactivity of others and therefore be able to take stands at the risk of displeasing. Now, everybody reading that slide should immediately think education page 57. The greatest want of the world is the want of men, people, who can stand for the right though the heavens fall, unafraid to call sin by its right name, true to duty as the needle to the pole. That kind of leadership is no longer the primary model for the postmodern world. And everybody just needs to understand that. And there's a reason. And I'll probably repeat myself a time or two on this. There's a reason. Because in the new leadership Melu, the real wisdom comes from the crowd. The best decisions are group ones. And by the way, there's a lot of value in group decision making. I'm not against that. But in the end, there is a role for the leader that sometimes challenges the status quo, be it moral or mental or relational of the group. And if you don't have the ability to displease anybody, you better not sign up to be a leader. Because the truth of the matter is, if you do your job right, there are going to be people who don't have the leadership role, who don't want somebody else who's not the leader to become the leader. And that means the leader's going to have to know how to nicely, as a servant, but serving as a leader, actually keep the structure that they were dispatched to do. He says, describing his own activity as a family therapist, I stopped creating encyclopedias of data about all their issues, and I began to search instead for the member of it, the family with the greatest capacity to be a leader, as I defined it. So he looked for the healthiest person. And what did he do? Soon I found, as he mentored that person, that the rest of the family was in therapy, puts that in quote, whether or not they came into my office. So for Friedman, finding that individual who was emotionally up to growing and changing and actually putting their face into the wind a little bit was his new instrumentality for actually helping to change families. And instead of focusing on what was wrong, he started focusing on what was right. And in the process, things started changing even when he wasn't around. In business, he says, I stopped pulling the workers or going around to the different divisions. Instead, I concentrated on working only with one or two leaders at the top. And soon I found that for organizations, too, by focusing on and supporting the strengths in the system, 
Rather than letting the pathology or the pathogens read troublemakers, determine my focus, the rest of the network was in therapy, whether or not they came into my office and whether or not I joined them on a retreat. Now, I believe in the beginning of this work, our most well-differentiated leader was this man, James White. And, you know, James was, uh, James was at the center of a number of controversies. Some of them were probably not necessary, but many of them were. James White had a sense of calling that I want to read to you about. This is part of Uriah Smith's commentary on the life of James. Uriah Smith wrote, Some have thought that he was deficient in social qualities and sometimes rigid, harsh, and unjust, even towards his best friends. But these feelings, we are persuaded, come from a failure to comprehend one of the strongest traits, sorry for the typo, in his character, which was his preeminent love for the cause in which he was engaged. To that, he subordinated all else. For that, he was willing to renounce home and friends. Now, I'm not done reading, but I do want to pause. We read the word cause. What we need to read almost in place of it is church, the apple of God's eyes, the body, the family of Christ. James White had a sense of obligation to Christ that the beginning of this work was the primary focus of his life. No man would have been more glad than he to enjoy continuously the pleasures of domestic and social life and the company of friends had he not thought that integrity to the cause called him to take a different course. But when this was the case, the voice of duty was first and all else was secondary. Some and whom, whose natures this principle is lacking, cannot comprehend the actions of a man who governed by such motives. But how would any man be fitted without such an element as this in his character to be the conservator of the interest of any cause whatsoever? In effect, what Smith is saying is that, you're, that James White was so devoted to duty that if you were his best friend and you were on the wrong side of an issue, there was going to be a strain and a stress in the relationship. Now, what I want to ask you is this. Are you this committed to objective truth? Now, everything you deal with is not black and white. So I don't want you to get the wrong idea. But James White was committed to the truth to where even his best friends at times wondered about him and didn't like him. But I want you to keep this in mind, friends. If you're a leader, remember what the Bible says. When a man's ways pleases the Lord... He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, I pastored for almost 20 years in one district. That means I watched almost a generation of people. And there were people that I displeased. Some of the ones I displeased the most ended up as some of my better friends. When you are a parent or a pastor or a leader on this spectrum somewhere, you need to understand that the way the relationship is now it does not determine the way the relationship is going to be somewhere down the road. What is going to be more critical to where the relationship goes is your emotional ability to keep doing what's right and loving the person you're trying to help. And in the end, we are so wired to be loved that most people in the end, after they get over being mad at you, will actually appreciate you. And this is what the Bible says. It says, rebuke a man, and in the end, you'll find favor from him. It's a big deal. But if we practice the esteemism and move on the motive of feeling, we're going to find that things that look good now won't be good later. As a matter of fact, James White said it, I mean, James Dobson said it this way. I'd rather tell the truth that heals, that hurts than heals, than a falsehood that comforts than kills. 
And this is where society is right now. And of course, there's some things you don't get a chance to fix. Some things are generational. And it takes you a generation to see that they're broken. And by the time you see that they're broken, it's too late. So I want to emphasize, as we start this morning, that the early leaders of our church were very dedicated to the discovery of truth. This is Adventism. You might have left Methodism. You might have left the Christian connection. I don't know what church you came out of 160 years ago to follow William Miller and to start this church, but you followed truth, which meant you were following Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. That still dictates true leadership and is still the best definition of true Adventism. You might have been an Adventist for five generations, maybe six now. I mean, that's your lineage. The truth of the matter is, every generation has to be born again. There are no grandchildren in the church. They're all children of God, just like you and me. So let's be committed to the truth. Now, one of the things I want you to take out of this first session is how to use the word kingly power. This word has been thrown around in an abusive way to actually wound the... I don't think this was the intention, but this is the outcome. And it has wounded the governmental, governmental and the, the process of interaction between different leaders in our church. If you were accused of having kingly power, you would have almost no way to defend yourself. So if somebody said, oh, oh you're, you're a person who's exercising kingly power. Well, every Adventist that's been listening a little bit knows that's a bad thing. You're reaching beyond where you should reach. You're abusing your leadership position. What I need you to understand when you leave this session today is whether or not what's going on in the church right now is they're exercising kingly power or whether it isn't. I think when I'm done, you'll be able to draw your own conclusions and you'll see how the term is used and how it's not being used the right way. Kingly power. It's referenced 130 times on the Ellen White website. And uh, of course, you know, many of those 130 times are repeated uses of the same phrase in different republications. But I'm going to reference to the 130 times you can read it. I looked at many of them, not absolutely everyone, but I spent a lot of time making sure I understood the term as it was used in context. That's a good rule for understanding and interpretation. Well, unsanctified humanity makes it onto the list. It appears that every human being has the potential of wanting to be king of something one time out of 130 plus times the word kingly power is used to describe unsanctified humanity. King of Shibosheth, remember uh, the one that was going to succeed Saul? Abner tried to set him up as the king in contradistinction to David, and that is two times it's used, so we still have 130-some to go. Choice. Now, I really like this. When Satan was able to deceive Eve and Adam chose to sin against God, Jesus showed up and he said, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, not so fast, Satan. They are not slaves automatically. They still have the power to choose. Part of their royal lineage was protected by Jesus. Five times the use kingly power is for choice. This is a great thing. We still have the ability to say, no, I don't want to serve Satan. Yes, I want to serve God. That's a gift from Jesus right straight from the garden. Now, the hopes and expectations of the apostles, they wanted Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom. Ten times, they are referenced as hoping Jesus will bring all the muscle and the power and the, and the wealth and the prestige. But of course, he didn't. Jesus is described ten times as leaving behind wealth and, and power and prestige and honor in heaven. And then there is the reference to Jesus' second coming. Ten times we are told that Jesus will come with kingly power. And then there's John Harvey Kellogg, 
The only Adventist that gets named, well, there is a general conference president or two, but he's not referenced, they aren't referenced to quite as much as Dr. Kellogg. Ten times we can read about his grasp for kingly power in the medical arena of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, that leaves us with about 80 uses of kingly power that I haven't gotten to. Now, I'm going to break those into two groups. I'm going to take the 60-some that refer to an abuse of the General Conference's power in the 1880s and the early 1900s. And then there's one more segment I want to share with you before you leave today that surprised me, and I think it'll surprise you. Now, I have more quotes here than I'm going to be able to read, so I'm going to skip some. I'm hoping that my PowerPoints will be posted to one of the GYC websites, so if you want to go over them, you can do that. So if I go faster than you can keep up, don't worry, you can have access to them. So Ellen White, writing in 1901 to the General Conference session, this was the opening address. Now you need to understand in 1901 is when the General Conference reorganized the church. That's when we developed the unions. And so now there would be a lot of independent decision making in a union level instead of everything going to Battle Creek. The church was growing too fast. It outgrew its ability to be administrated from Battle Creek where the General Conference was. And so here we are on the cusp of a major reorganization of the church. The General Conference and the World Church is built on unions. Now, we do have divisions, but those are really just collections of unions. It's union presidents and union officers that shape the Autumn Council, the General Conference uh, Executive Committee. And this is about to happen, and here's what she has to say. Now, I want to say, God has not put any kingly power in our ranks to control this or that branch of the work. The work has been greatly restricted by the efforts to control it in every line. Now you're getting a sense that this little work that grew bigger, all the decisions were being made, and it was hard for the decision makers and those who depended on the decision makers to change. But too much was being decided at Battle Creek. There must be a renovation, a reorganization, a power and strength must be brought to the committees that are necessary. God's not setting any kingly power in our church to control the whole body or control any branch of the work. He's not provided that the burden of leadership shall rest upon a few men. The division of the General Conference into district unions of conferences was God's arrangement. This is written two years later. In the work of the Lord in these last days, there should be no Jerusalem centers, no kingly power. Now, you need to understand part of where this came from. Ellen White went to Australia. She lived there for close to a decade During that period of time, she had difficulty getting money to start the sanitarium and the work there. She would write back to America and she'd say, look, I've spent nights without sleep. We don't know what to do. We don't have money and we don't know how to get going. The the answer rests with you in America. And by the way, the answer still rests with us. We still have a disproportionate amount of wealth and we still ought to be assisting the world church. But she couldn't get much to happen. As a matter of fact, she wrote to the Battle Creek Sanitarium and asked for money and she never heard from them. And later on, she found out why. Because the Battle Creek Sanitarium had written a policy that said no funds will leave, battle, will leave the state of Michigan that are generated at the, at the sanitarium. She wrote later, God will not sanction this way of operating. But she couldn't get much help. Battle Creek was too far away. It was not the age of the Internet and the phone. All right, we're going to skip on. All in God's servants, all of God's servants have a work to do in his vineyard. In the church of God, no one is to set himself up as a kingly power. All of you are brethren. Be courteous in speech, very kindly in action. Now, 
if, if as we go through these three sessions, what you're going to see is that for Ellen White, religious dogma and doctrine are not as important as religious character and how we relate to each other. So she will call things that are significant, you would say, like what is the daily sacrifice in the book of Daniel? And what is the law, of, law in Galatians? Is it the moral law or is it the ceremonial law? She'll call both of these issues matters of little importance. So what we need to know going on this journey is that for her, how we treat each other as individuals, as church members, and as leaders is more important than our religious posturing. The Lord would work mightily for His people today if they would place themselves wholly under His guidance. These, they greatly need the constant abiding of the Holy Spirit. All right, I'm going to have to move pretty fast and skip over a fair amount here. So here's one that's painful. This is written to conference presidents. There's a great work to be done. My heart aches as I think of the many who are unready to meet their Lord, of the wasted time that's passed into eternity. Oh, God, have mercy on my people is my prayer. Grown-up men and women are acting like little children. There's not a particle of excuse for the strife and alienation that exists among us. Now, I, I hope all of us as leaders at different capacities can say to ourselves, Are we a contributor to unity and harmony, or are we a contributor to strife and disunity? Now, we may not agree, and we may have to agree to disagree, but can we do it in such a way that we remain brothers and sisters, unless, of course, we're dealing with genuine rebellion and a refusal to submit to some part of the moral law? I'm not referencing to somebody who's committing adultery and has to be confronted by the church. That person probably won't like you. There probably won't be union and unity. There probably will be some strife on the road to accountability. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact when we disagree over a theological tenet, which is a lot of what Adventism has been about through the years. It's trying to define the truth. All right, I'm going to skip through a bunch of this. And I'm going to come down to a situation where Ellen White... Oh, let's do this one. The managers of our publishing houses made me a solemn promise that if I would accept 15 cents in place of 20 cents as a royalty, they would push the great controversy in patriarchs and prophets with all their might. But this promise was not fulfilled. I'm going to tell you the story rather than go through the quotes. She wanted the great controversy to go out. God had shown her that it should go out. The publishing house... Basically, the men who were running it were covetous. They had a problem with kingly authority. They tried to control everything. There are three arenas in the church of the 19th century where there is kingly power being exercised. One is the medical, one is the publishing, and one is the administrative level of the, of the general conference. This is a story that most people aren't aware of. Ellen White is told by them if, they'll ta- if she'll take a deduction on the royalties for her books, which she used to pay her workers, she used it to advance God's cause, she took care of some of her personal needs, that they would push the great controversy and tell the call porters not to sell the other books so much. Well, this didn't happen. But the interesting thing along the way is that God told Ellen White, don't publish through our publishing houses. Go outside and use a secular publishing house. Ellen White talks to her children instead of doing what God says. And her children say, we don't think this is a good idea right now because there's a lot of strong headwinds against you. And Ellen White doesn't do what God says. And for two years, the great controversy is not promoted. It is not given to the people, so light is not out there dispelling darkness. Later on, Ellen White will confess that she did what was wrong. She shouldn't have moved with the advice of her children. She doesn't say it exactly like that. 
and that for two years a grave mistake has been made, eventually this is righted, but one of the areas where there was this trauma was in the publishing work, and it was a big mistake. She said the hesitation in venturing forward was unbelief. You think of Ellen White as a woman who who marched according to the dictates of God and had strong faith. Well, she was human like you and me, and occasionally it wavered. Um, The kingly power formally exhibited in the General Conference in Battle Creek is not to be perpetuated. Skip to the next paragraph. No one is to consider that the branch of the work in which they're connected is of more importance than the other branches. All right, we got to keep going. I'll tell you one other story before I touch briefly here. When Edson White wanted to do the Morning Star, the people in Battle Creek thought all the money needed to flow through the General Conference. Ellen White said, no, that's not true. These are intelligent people who God has entrusted with means. See, there was an attempt to control the mission, the money, the publishing, and the medical work. There was too much authoritative structure, but it was by a very few people. Now, when David comes up to a second opportunity to kill Saul, he's got his nephew with him, and his nephew says, I'll take his sword and I'll take him out. It will happen rapidly and I won't need two strikes. And David says, no way. This is David's second attempt where he could kill Saul. What David says, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. Now, the reason I'm going over this journey with you is that if the term kingly power is slung around the wrong way, it is a verbal sword to cut to pieces people who might be actually doing what they're actually supposed to do. We have an anti-authority bias in our culture. It is not just in our culture, it is in our church. It started with the eviscerating of fatherhood two generations ago, and it's made its way down to the place in the postmodern world where anybody who exercises any authority is an abusive entity. So if you use the word kingly power the wrong way, you might actually be hamstringing legitimate authority that would protect the well-being of a body of people, including the church. Now, I told you there were 130 references. There's about 60 that refer to the wrong use of over-control of money and mission from the Battle Creek Sanitarium, I mean, from the Battle Creek General Conference. I'd like to skip through all these, but we'll go through them very quickly again. Just to remind you, this is where we're at. All of these uses, about half of the 130 for things that we didn't know anything about. And then we come down to the last 60, and we realize that it's over control. But that leaves us with 20-some references. And when I read these quotes, I was amazed. I don't think most people talking about kingly power even know these quotes exist. But 20 times, the word kingly power is used this way. It is God's purpose that the kingly power of sanctified reason, controlled by the divine grace, shall bear sway in the lives of human beings. He who rules his spirit is in possession of this power. Let's do one more. God's law has been placed around human beings as a bulwark to protect them, body, soul, and spirit, from defilement, the kingly power of sanctified reason, controlled by the grace of Christ, is to bear sway in the hearts of the Lord's workers. They should spend much time in secret prayer, in close communion with God. Thus only can they gain the victory. Do you know what, friends? God wants each of us to exercise this kind of kingly power. So I need to ask you, while you're sitting in a seminar on Christian leadership, are you reactive? Or can you let God create a buffer zone between you and the immediate reactivity of maybe 
some insecurity or some frustration or resentment that might lie just below the surface of who you are. Sanctified reason, the grace of being controlled by the Spirit of Christ is to bear sway in the heart of the Lord's workers. And how do you get it? She tells us in the bottom of the quote, spend much time in secret prayer in close communion with God. This is the only way to gain the victory. Now, it doesn't matter to me what position you hold. You could be a conference president, division, general conference, union, pastor, deaconess, parent, whatever position you hold, this is the kind of kingly power God wants us to have. And when the use of the term kingly power is slung around at the current process of government in our Adventist church, I think you need to understand something. The term is being used out of context. It is detrimental to the proper processing, and it is a slur on leadership. What it was was two or three men in Battle Creek attempting to control all the money, attempting to make all the missional and the administrative decisions. There was a brief period of time when Ellen White did not sanction the the administration at Battle Creek as having the final voice of authority, but that was before the reorganization. So here's what I want to do in the last few minutes of our seminar here. I want to remind you that in General Conference of 2015, there had been four years of the Theology of Ordination Study Committee that had been processing. Many biblical scholars and pastors and teachers sat on that committee. For four years, they interacted over what the nature of ordination was, how it related to the genders, and finally we came up to a vote at the General Conference session. Now, Many of you may have watched on that Wednesday in San Antonio when the dialogue went on. It went on for hours. It was just the final little tip of the iceberg of all the dialogue that had been going on in person, over the internet, in publications. But when it came time to actually vote at the general conference session, there were over 2,300 delegates there to vote. Now, the question I need to ask you is, does that sound like two or three people making a decision? Beyond that, all of those 2,300 delegates got to vote secret ballot. What does that mean? There will be no repercussions for how they vote. They will be able to vote without anybody knowing what they said or what they thought or what they wrote. When the vote was done, there were 1,300 and some that had voted not in favor for the North American division to have its own opportunity to manage according to its understanding of its own ecclesiology, and there were 900 and some who thought they should be allowed to. Now, just a few months ago, we had the Autumn Council in Battle Creek. Interesting that it should be there. They bring it back there every once in a while. We had 309 voting delegates that participated on the Sunday when we looked at the compliance document, Compliance and Unity. 180-some voted one way, 120-some voted the other way. It has no resemblance whatsoever to two or three people controlling all the decisions made in one place. When you put 309 free-thinking, strong lay people, strong-minded pastors and administrators together, and they can vote in private, and they can speak their piece in public, which they all did, when you put 2,300 people together, it shows not the least resemblance of what kingly power meant in the way it was used in Ellen White's day. And this is the thing that I think every individual in the Adventist church who participates in reading any of the dialogue or watching any of the process needs to know. And so if you were to accuse somebody of kingly power, you're actually 
taking a definition from the 19th century that was truly an abuse of power and using it to describe a process where now thousands who represent millions are getting to vote their mind in secrecy. And it's pretty hard to say that they're apples and apples. It is truly a dynamic of apples and oranges, night and day. And so the use of the word kingly power, especially when associated with leaders in high position, is actually just a way of hamstringing them if they're not well differentiated from being able to do their job. So it's very important that you understand the phraseology. Now, I've taken you on a little subset of what that phraseology means so that when you hear somebody saying it, you can say to them, do you know how that phrase is actually used? And do you understand what it meant? And when Ellen White said in the 1880s, when she said the General Conference of Session is no longer the voice of God's authority, final voice, she goes on to say, but don't let that be confused with a duly constituted General Conference Session when when there's many delegates. So in this first session, I want to establish two things in your mind. Number one, that to go into leadership, you need to understand what it is God's going to hold you accountable to do. You do receive some measure of authority from the body, which I'm going to talk more about in the next session. But you also receive a measure of responsibility, which means authority from God himself. Now, we don't operate in a vacuum on either side. We're not a raw democracy, nor are we a theocracy as defined in the days of Moses. But we are on a journey where it's important for us to understand how the terms are used. My hope is, is that each of us today can be a well-differentiated leader. Who knows that you have somebody you're accountable to and someone you need to take direction from. If you're not called to be a follower, you probably will never be safe to be called to be a leader. Because most of us are called to be followers long before we're called to be leaders. Can you do the little thing well so that you can be prepared to do the greater thing well? This is really kind of the issue that we're dealing with here this morning. All right, well, what I'd like to do in the time remaining is open the floor for comments or questions. We actually have about 15 or more minutes here, and we won't prolong the session if there are no questions or comments, but I'd like to uh, open it up for you to be able to make an observation or ask a question, and then when we don't have any more questions, we'll cut the session, and you'll be able to take a little bit longer break for your lunch. Are there any questions? Okay, let's start here. we jump over there. Okay, um, you mentioned that Ellen White said that, okay, that she was more interested in the way we treat each other rather than our religious postures, right? Say that one more time. I want to okay. make sure I hear it. Okay, you, you mentioned that, like, our, our religious postures were minor in relation to the way we treat each other, according to Ellen White, right? Okay, that sounds good, and I think that's good. Maybe if we are talking about personal convictions and we are not affecting anybody by the way we think, but may you be suggesting that we don't need to discuss issues, we just need to be kind to each other and we should not deal with that, or, or we should discuss the issues and we should just treat kindly each other? Because there are issues that affect a whole body, not just a person, then what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think what she's saying and what I want to make sure I'm echoing is that you should talk about the issues, but along the way, you should not lose your love for the person you're talking with. 
nor your respectability or theirs, nor your dignity or theirs. Because see, what happens is for a body to actually make a safe decision, it does need to be a group decision. But when I quit liking you or you quit liking me, now I'm not thinking straight. My thought process is blinded by some of how I feel. And you may actually say something that's true that I need to hear, but because you said it and you hurt my feelings or you made me mad or I'm whatever the situation may be, I may not actually hear it from you because the love of God that should exist between us is gone and I can't hear the way I heard before. Is that fair enough? She does not in any way suggest that we just be nice and don't talk about things. And if you knew me personally, and you'll know me a little better after a couple more sessions, that's not who I am either. But I do believe that there is a primacy of how we treat people that supersedes what we think about any given topic. All right? I think we had a question over here. Thanks. Uh, I just want to preface uh, you know, what I'm going to say with a statement. There are some of us at the local church level who for years have been saying, you know, we are called upon to be subordinated to our authorities at the conference level. And then when we see, you know, our leaders at a higher level disregarding authority, we're saying, you know, they're breeding the atmosphere of insubordination. In other words, they're encouraging us now not to be, you know, subordinate to them. So, you know, so we're happy for, for what is happening at that level. But my question, though, is you made an analogy regarding, you know, the numerical analogy, the few compared to the, you know, the hundreds and thousands who are making the decisions now. Here's my question, though. Could we do that on a ratio basis? Was it two, you know, two men, a few men, compared to the, would, how should I put it? Would the, would the few in the 1800s be equivalent to the hundreds now because of the numerical growth of the church? And what and, and, and if so is the case, and I haven't done the research, I'm just hearing what you're presenting. If that is the case, what response would you give? Well, you make a, a good observation that proportionally, maybe we're not that different than we were before. The problem with that is that you run into an actual logistical limitation at some point in time where you say, we have now reached a threshold of inefficiency. And only so many voices. I mean, let's be honest. There were 2,300 delegates that voted at the general conference session. How many of them even got to go to a microphone? You could have a session that lasted a month long and half of them still wouldn't get to talk. You see what I'm saying? So at some level, you reach a logistical hindrance that isn't going to be fixed by adding numbers. So... The one thing where I would say that the point of reference probably doesn't, doesn't strike as much traction with me is that two or three people can be in league with each other different than 2,000 cannot. So the idea that I could have two or three really good friends and we could agree and have a lockdown on power is not permitted when I get even to 20 or 30. Uh, just the very nature of human nature, and especially if we believe that the individuals involved are actually living by some measure of conviction, not some manipulation of relationships. Now, I, I would say that your first point about our leaders practicing what they want us to practice is super salient. That is a very excellent point. 
And uh, later in one of my seminars, I'll have a quote where Ellen White says, in effect, if I could just go around the leaders and talk to the people, they get it. So I'm encouraging you to be prayerful about that. And personally, I think the lay people themselves should actually express that sentiment to leaders farther up the way whom they don't think are giving to leaders farther up the way what we're to give to the ones right above us. So I don't think there's a fix by a lot of numerical addition. As the church grows, my guess is the number of representatives is probably going to stay static. And you're going to see, instead of one for every two or 3,000 or 20,000, you're going to start to see one for every more, multiple thousand. It's just the nature of what it has to be. So uh, on a racial basis, we might be close to the same, but on a practical basis, we've broken the lock on, on uh, monolithic thinking. So reasonable enough? All right. We've got a couple other hands. This, you, you almost answered what I was going to ask, but um, I was going to say just as a layperson or a, a, woman, a female leader, I'm at a local church level mm-hmm. who um, I, I believe that I've come down on the right side of the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thankful that, our, that I'm part of a church that does as well. Um, so I just wanted to ask, you were saying that leaders should talk to leaders, should talk to leaders until it reaches the top. But how does that, how do you employ that in a practical way? And as a tithe paying baptized member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, do we have a way, is, is there a letter that can be written? What are the respectful ways to communicate those things that we believe and we want our leaders to stand for? Yeah, good question. And Ellen White will address this issue. I'll put the quote up in one of the future sessions. Well, she'll say, If you don't agree with somebody, you should express yourself, write a letter, state your position frankly, ask them to make an amends, but she pretty much leaves it at that, and then you got to go on. Because the real responsibility is this, is that under my leadership, I have a certain circle of influence. I am directly responsible for managing that well. I have what's called a fiduciary trust. I am responsible for caring for people. For the people above me, I have a brotherly and sisterly concern and they do affect me. And I have a brotherly concern and responsibility to write and tell them if I believe they're really off on the wrong way or speak to them that they're doing that. And after that, it's kind of like Paul in Corinthians where he says, I've declared the whole truth to you. I'm free from your blood. And, and I think there's a point where every Christian has to be okay with that because otherwise they're going to go around frustrated and resentful and with a little backdoor on pride that I know more than the leader knows. What I want to show you in this seminar is how to be heard by being respectful and being a woman of character, a man of character, so that it's hard not to listen to you and so that there could be change. It may not happen right when you write the letter. It might happen years later. Good question. So you may be covering this in a future session, but um, one of the big questions today is what if there's a conflict between the authority of the church and my conscience. Yeah. Because there's, there is a, an authority there as well. So how would you uh, respond to that? Yeah, there is an authority there. And so we're all Protestants and we do believe at the end, in the end, we're going to be judged directly by God and we're going to have to follow our conscience. But we also believe that truth is not of any private interpretation. And so there is a group process. And I have to subject, subject myself at some level, to the prayerful deliberations of the body, or else I have a choice. I can disassociate myself with that body. But now to remain in that body, 
with that theological understanding of the discovery of truth and be an antagonist is disingenuous. Now, most of what's dividing the church right now is, I believe, if we take the law in Galatians and we take the daily in Daniel, both very significant issues to the development of Adventist theology, most of what we're discussing right now probably is on the same par as the law in Galatians, righteousness by faith, or the daily prophetic interpretation. And Mrs. White will call those matters of minor importance. So I'm not here to demean the topic as, as if discussing women's ordination or the lifestyles of the remnant doesn't matter. But I, will believe, I do believe, and I think I can show you, that she makes a very strong case that in the end, all of us must possess enough humility to believe that we could actually be wrong. Now, we do our best to believe we're right, but when we're so right that we're not respectful to each other, we are wrong. And I'll show you a quote where she says, in effect, O consistency, has thou left us as Seventh-day Adventist. And she will consistently place the way we treat each other above our theological orthodoxy. So this is what's wounding our church right now. We do not love each other enough. We are not close enough to each other. We are not wrestling with our own feelings about each other. And consequentially, like the Democrats and the Republicans, we can't do anything. Now, that's a bad analogy, but it's a good analogy. By the way, I just heard on the radio the other day how for the liberal left in our country right now, the border and immigration is a moral issue. Well, I want to tell you, as soon as it becomes a moral issue, how do you back up? Once you turn something into a moral issue, I once had a lady in my church who thought that we should expand the parking lot at the church school so people didn't have to park along the road. Is there anything wrong with her holding that opinion? No. She's on the board. Is there anything wrong with her voicing her opinion? No. But let me tell you what she did, which violated proper respect for every other board member. When she didn't get her way, she said, now when somebody gets run down on that road, it's going to be your fault. She just took a discussion about how much blacktop should be on the road, and she moralized it to a life and death issue. So now you couldn't have a discussion with her anymore about it because it was on a different plane. When you do that to a dialogue, you are being unfair intellectually to a discussion of an idea, and you've now turned it into it has to be your way, and you found the moral high ground because of the moral issue. Now, it may have moral overtones. I'd feel bad if someone got ran down on the road. But you know what? I might feel bad if we didn't have enough money to save somebody for eternity by putting a dollar into evangelism instead of another dollar into blacktop. I could moralize that if I wanted, right? What I'm trying to give you is a sense of what a mature dialogue looks like when you disagree. Fair enough? So there is a group process. If I decide that I don't want to wear jewelry and I don't have a wedding ring on, but I am wonderfully married for 33, almost 34 years, that's my personal conviction. But the church has decided that a simple wedding band is no longer the same statement as a studded earring. And so I don't tell people that I won't baptize you if you're wearing a simple wedding band. I don't have the right to do that. It's my personal conviction, but it's no longer part of the progression to a statement of faith. They get to, they get to understand the situation and study it for themselves. This is what we voted as a church body. Now, 30, 40 years ago, that was tearing the church apart. It seems passe today. 
I follow my convictions. I'm not wearing one. I will tell you this. There was at least one time in my life that I think having one on would have saved a little bit of embarrassment. Now, having said that, can we actually accept the fact that there might be issues that are of minor importance that are not worth a moral separation? Good question. All right, any other questions? Yep, right here. Sorry, didn't mean to skip you. We've got about five minutes, so we'll take at least these two questions. Okay. I just want to say the easiest way for me to remain in the church, because I'm sure all of us know some people who have left the church because they got upset with the leaders yeah. or something that the leaders did. Yeah. And so for me, it's just that I follow whatever the leaders are doing up until a moral point. Okay. So if I'm looking at something and I have seen how I think how this is going to play out and logistically it's probably not going to work, I may make a suggestion and they're not hearing me, I drop it. I just let it happen, however it's going to happen. If it's not a moral issue, if it is, then I'm just going to leave the situation and move on. And that's helped me to be able to stay in the church my entire life. And also, of course, remembering that God is really the head of the church. Ellen White says that. that. I'm going to put a slide up where she says, we've only got one leader. Exactly. Exactly. So I've, I've, I've suggested things to a pastor before. I've suggested an all-night prayer meeting to a pastor before. He literally laughed at me. And then I've had other situations where some, a leader made a racist comment and I said, I made them aware of it and they were like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. Let me know again if I ever do something like that again. So it's, you always do want to make a suggestion, like yeah. you said, but then if they don't hear it, then you just move on. Because well, sometimes be- it works out really well and we may think, oh, I don't want to suggest because they're not going to try to hear me. And sometimes it goes really well and sometimes it doesn't, but you just got to make that suggestion and then do your part and then pray and then move on. Well said. Now, the only comment I'd make is this, is did your parents ever do anything you didn't like? Of course. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Church is no difference. I appreciate your analogy. It's well said. And there is a point where we have a responsibility. You fulfilled your well well by talking to the individuals. With a forgiving heart, you can forgive the person who made a racist comment. If he did it again, you might have a little more of an iron sharpening iron moment. But you love him or her, whoever it was, You cared about them enough to say it instead of just go off and tell six other people, which wouldn't have done any good. Very good. Thank you. All right. So my question relates to authority again. The great, the the general conference you mentioned had thousands of delegates. The annual council has hundreds um, representing the same amount of people, the whole world church. Right. Um, What degree of authority is in those. Are they the exact same authority? Because it seems in my mind, at least conceptually, that the General Conference has a greater authority. It does. An annual council has. So, the, like the decision about wedding rings, for example, was made at an annual council, not the General Conference. So, you know, what, at what point do we say, well, that's just an annual council decision. We're going to stick with, you know, you see what I'm saying? You're making a good point, all right? And I don't, I'm not laughing at it because it's not a good point. It's a good point. Here's the deal. The annual council is the church board of the general church. The general conference session is the business meeting. Okay? So most of what goes on in your churches is kind of the final authority for your church. But there is one meeting that trumps the church board, and that is the business session. You typically, one of the things I hope uh, that I'd like to tuck in your mind is a, a, a pitfall to avoid, and you're not doing this. But you never want to pit two good things against each other. So you make a legitimate point. General conference session is the business meeting of the church. 
Annual council is the church board of the world church. And so at some level, one might make a case that the one authority is not as great as another, and that would be a legitimate point of view. But how far we want to parse that down on something that, um, in this case, I would say as a person who doesn't wear a wedding ring, a wedding ring is almost so passe, marriage itself is almost passe now. Okay? So I want to be really careful. The wedding ring may have changed meanings in the last two decades, last three decades. It might be that a wedding band without any stones in it actually means something that is way better than it used to mean as a wasted expenditure 30 or 40 years ago. Now, I hope you don't think I'm a heretic to say that, but I have to be true to who I am. I was raised by a backslidden mother. I had to figure out right and wrong for myself, so I learned to think on my feet and say, this makes sense and this doesn't. I don't want to be so calcified in my orthodoxy that I can't recognize the Messiah when he comes in poor clothes without a home over his head. You see what I'm saying? So wrestle with it according to the degree of good-naturedness towards the presenter, okay? And if you want to share with me a different opinion, I'll respect you for it. I'm here because I'm hoping to help bind up the wounds that separate us over issues that matter, but not enough to divide. All right. I think we better tie it off. If anybody else has a question, come up and see me. I'll linger for a few minutes. Let's stand, and we will have prayer. Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters, this dear church. Thank you for these excellent questions. Thank you that we have time to focus on what terms mean and what they don't mean and how they should be used and how they shouldn't be used. Give us all a noble Christian character, a deep love for you and for each other, and help us, Lord, to find the truth. Help us to be able to hear each other, even if we disagree. May we not be proud. And may we not be so meek that we don't have any convictions. Bless us, I pray, with a dogged determination to submit, to hear, to walk in the narrow way, and to love. Is this my prayer in Jesus' name? Amen. God bless you. We have two more sessions after lunch if you can join us. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.